Have your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis in chapter 25. Pray together before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It's your revelation to us. Thank you that every word comes through your hand. And Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So Genesis and 25. And then verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore her name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die, of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Last week we looked at the birth of Esau and Jacob and those twins in Rebekah's womb and they were miraculously conceived as Rebekah was barren, if you remember. And Rebekah received the word from the Lord that those two boys struggling in her womb were two nations Jocelyn, struggling, fighting within her. The younger would be the stronger, and the older would serve the younger. And here we have the first fulfilment of that word, as we here see that how the younger supplants the older, and in particular how the older gives up what he should not. I guess one of the most famous lines uttered by a Christian in the last Century is probably the words by Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you remember the story of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and the other American missionaries who went into the Amazon in South America and they lost their earthly lives that they cannot keep, that we cannot keep. They gained an eternal reward. And not only that, the legacy is absolutely amazing. The legacy of gospel fruitfulness. That people with whom they were trying to share the gospel have now come to embrace the gospel. So in losing what they cannot keep, they gained what cannot be lost. And to be a Christian is to understand that what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ is so much more important than anything we may experience, anything that we may suffer or any desire that we may have here on earth. It's that eternal hope. And that's what church is all about. To point people to Jesus who lives the eternal hope. 
Because otherwise, if we're just trying to make people's lives better here and now, we aren't very good at that anyway. But that's not who we are. We, we are children of the promise. And to be a Christian means that what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ is so much more important than any material benefit here, any suffering, any experience, any desire. Being a Christian knows means that we can let go. That's a tremendous gift to be able to let go. Because all around we see people who are unable to let go of grudges, of hatred, and it gets them into so much trouble. But being a Christian means that we know we can let go and we know what we can never ever give up. In the last few years, we were talking about it on Thursday night as well, we've heard more and more stories of apostasy. And then as Reformed believers, we believe that once justified, you can never lose your salvation. But the Bible is replete of stories of, of people who have some connection to Christ and the church, and they commit apostasy. They fall away. They were not truly born again. They weren't truly justified, but they had some connection. And we know that from our experience. We know people where that has happened. And of course, as the stories are told, we don't use the word these days, apostasy. It's kind of like a Christian word, maybe some, an old-fashioned church word, maybe. But instead, we hear stories all over the media of people who deconvert. Have you heard that? Deconversion? It's kind of like the word deconversion, but it simply it means apostasy. People who leave the faith, they become atheists or agnostics, or they go to a form of progressive Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, because it has left the gospel behind. Steve Chalk. I remember, you know, sort of, he in the, in the late 1990s, he was held up as this wonderfully trendy evangelical minister. Today, he's telling the government to go further than the government are willing to go to prosecute Christians who believe in the Bible. It's apostate. They've left behind a Bible-believing faith. I was um, on Thursday night. There was. One of the sisters who was here said, whenever I get a form and it fills out what is your religion, she goes, it's only a short space. She fills in gospel-believing, Bible-believing Christian. And I thought, well, you know, that's right. You know, it's probably not enough to say Christian today because of how many people claim to be Christian. And many have left behind a Bible-believing evangelical faith. Sometimes the explanations may be you know, to do with society and people think in their own warped way that they're leaving, that was a naive thing that they used to believe and now they've become enlightened. Now they're clever and they've left that thing behind that hampered them so much. That thing called Christianity that was so restrictive. Well, sometimes the reason is political because Many times some of the moral views that Christians hold are seen as only political. So we leave that behind because we want to embrace a different kind of politics. Or that 
or the, or the, or the explanation is to do with the church because of, sadly there's so much hypocrisy in the church. There's so much hurt experienced in the church. People say, oh, we had no choice but to leave all of that behind. And sometimes the explanation people give is that I was brought up in a domineering legalistic family. So I had to leave that behind to find my true expression. There's all kinds of reasons people can give for why they jettonise their faith. They apostatize. But what is missing so many times is the theological explanation. And here is one explanation for why people connected to Christianity fall away. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is, we're coming to Esau now. And did you notice the first thing is, bitterness springs up. And when bitterness wreaks havoc in a person's life, that can lead them to throw away their status as sanctified, as set apart, and become defiled. And the second explanation Hebrews gives us is that people choose sexual immorality or another kind of unholiness instead of their spiritual inheritance. And Hebrews tells us that these explanations, bitterness, sexual immorality, they choose unholiness. And Esau was so like too many people. He chose to fulfil his immediate desires instead of God's blessing. And that's the way of the world. There's no thought of eternity. There are people who gratify immediately their desire. They have to have it and they have to have it now. Even when it comes to things. In the old days, we used to save up for things. My mum used to say, if you wanted the action man, you had to save up for it. I remember that one, an action man even. But now, you get it now. And if you can't get it now, you actually get it delivered to you the next day. Instant gratification. Instant. You want it? You can have it now. And Esau sought to fulfil his desires now, instead of waiting for the eternal blessing later. And that is the choice of thousands of Christ-influenced people. I don't use the word Christians, because they're not in the truest sense Christians. Christ-influenced people who make these decisions. And that's the choice that Esau made in Genesis 25. No one comes out in a hero in our text, Isaac is coming across as weak, he's playing favourites, he had a favourite son. Isaac favoured Esau because he gave him the food he liked. Not exactly a great reason to have a family favourite. Rebecca has a favourite, and she comes across strongly as well. And Genesis tells us that Rebecca, though strong, can be scheming. It's hard to blame her though. She received a word from the Lord that the older would serve the younger which may have justified in her mind why, why Jacob was her favourite. Jacob is shrewd. The name means grasp the heel. And Jacob is the one trying to supplant another. He's a trickster, a schemer, a deceiver. 
Now, in Jacob's favour, you could say he believed in the promise. At least he believed in the value of the birthright. He goes about it the wrong way, but God uses it sovereignly for his purposes. So this is a family with issues, we would say. But the point of the story isn't to point to any of the family members as being exceptional. This story isn't about how wonderful a hero Isaac is, or Rebecca, or Jacob. The story is about God, God's sovereign purposes being fulfilled through this imperfect family. And we can take, I think, some comfort from that. But there are lessons to be drawn, especially as we look at Esau. As we've seen God's sovereignty from the womb that he chose Jacob. Romans tells us, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's the principle of divine election at work, before they've done anything good, or bad. But lest you think that that high view of divine sovereignty eliminates our responsibility, quickly we see that Esau is at fault for despising his birthright. Esau is responsible for his choices and his actions. So Isaac is weak, Rebekah is cunning, Jacob is opportunistic, but Esau is faithless. He has no faith in the promise. The blessings that we've seen that God had given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, should have passed on to Esau by birth. Humanly speaking, that great nation that we've been looking at, promised to Abraham, should have come to Esau. The promised Messiah, humanly speaking, should have come through his line. The promised land should have belonged to Esau. The birthright was his. And the statement in verse 34 says he despised his birthright. He counted it worthless. He counted his birthright as worth less than a bowl of stew. I didn't used to like stew until I lived in Vienna, and I'm, I'm absolutely in love now with Hungarian goulash. You like Hungarian goulash? It is the best in the world, I promise you. It made me hungry even preparing for this. But why did Esau make such a bad choice? Why do people compromise the faith? Why do people do the exact opposite of what Jim Elliot said? Why do people give up something of such immense value in exchange for something of so little value? A meal! A meal! He gave up his birthright for a meal. Well, let us look at why Esau made such a bad choice. And we can learn some lessons from this. Number one, he was short-sighted. He was living for immediate gratification here and now. He wasn't interested in what he could gain later. He just knew that he was hungry right then. Sin, my friend, makes us stupid. How could anyone throw everything away and make such a stupid choice? Because sin makes us stupid. Sin, sin does, it really does make us stupid. We can think, you know, we can look at things. I often, I've spoken to a few brothers this, you know, this week and sometimes you see things that are really illogical happening. Not making a big point, but apparently, that, remember I've maybe we've said it before, that during COP26, there was a hotel that gave every one of its guests Teslas 
and then hired diesel generators to charge the, the electric. It's not very logical, is it? But it makes a good virtue point. But sin is the one that makes us stupid. Sin is the thing that makes us stupid. Now praise God, he can redeem us, he can forgive us, he can bring healing, even for our greatest failures. But Esau makes a stupid choice because he is so short-sighted. He's hungry and he wants to eat. And if you notice this as well, it seems a fair point, he was exhausted in verse 29. And I have seen pastors' ministries fall because of t exhaustion. It's when, the, it, it's when the enemy is on the lookout. When you're tired, you make bad choices. You know when you should not make important life decisions? is when you're tired. You know, at the end of the day, and you've had a really, really hard day, and things have been thrown at you, don't quit your job at 11 o'clock at night. Don't. Otherwise, every pastor will be out of the business by 10.30 on Monday morning. But, no. but when you're at your weakest, and you convince yourself that nothing has gone right, your wife isn't treating you well, your husband isn't paying attention to you, the children are having an absolute nightmare, dogs are barking all night, and everyone's got a cold, and you're so tired of restrictions, you're just so tired of lockdown, you're so tired of the media, and you convince yourself. Just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit of self-pity. Just a little look at that website. Just a little bit of revenge. Just a little bit of gossip. Just a little bit of anger. I deserve it. I'm tired. And when you're exhausted, you can become short-sighted. You don't make good decisions. So too often, we resemble Esau. We're willing to trade in eternal rewards, eternal blessings for a full time. Of academic credentials or large possessions. The problem is that Esau, the problem is not just that Esau was unholy, Hebrews tells us he was, he was foolish. You have the birthright and he sold it for soup. He sold his birthright for a lentil stew. And rather than waiting patiently to prepare a meal, the promised blessings that would come later traded it in for instant gratification. But are we learning the lessons, not just with food, but with spiritual things, to delay that insatiable appetite for instant gratification? Part of what becoming an adult is, or what used to be an adult, is you learn to say yes to hard things now to get better things later. One of the lessons of education, isn't it? You know, all... All of, the, all of the hard work, all of the revision, all of the exams, you say yes to hard things to get better things later. In order to get better things later, you say yes to hard things now. And if you want the marriage that goes 50, 60 years, and that couple that walks around the neighbourhood holding hands, you want that? You need to die to things today. Just as any athlete will tell you, for training, or I know people here who run, training is important. Or if you play an instrument, 
or anything you want to be good at. You have to delay your gratification. You may need to hear this message or you may know someone who needs to hear this message because you're not thinking straight. Sin is making you stupid and you're halfway in or your big toe is at the line to make a foolish decision and God wants you to preserve you. That's one of the reasons I think we should really pray for our young people so much because I was hearing of a dear, dear friend this week, a dear, dear friend, <coughs> class of 30 on Thursday, and someone came in, he didn't know anything about it, he didn't know anything about it, he wasn't warned. Someone came in and somebody said, you stand over there if you think that a man can marry a woman, a man can marry a man, and you stand over there if you don't know, and you stand over there if you think it's wrong. 28 stood there, one stood there, and my friend's kid stood there. I mean, it, it, it's horrific. Absolutely horrific. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. Don't let sin make you stupid. Second thing we see is that Esau was uninterested in the promises of God. The birthright was probably a verbal promise. I don't think that they would have had more than a verbal promise, but it implied several things in the ancient world. It meant a double portion of the inheritance. See that in Deuteronomy. It meant that the oldest son assumed headship of the family. And it meant that the promise, in particular with Abraham and Isaac, of an unimaginable blessing, a great name, a great nation, the presence of God, was wrapped up in this birthright. We have many records in the ancient world that birthright was transferable. You could sell it, you could trade it, you could barter it, you could exchange it. So Jacob says, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So the ancient equivalent of signing on the dotted line, this is making it official, this is notarising it, this is legal binding value, swear it to me. And he did it because Esau was faithless. He must have heard of the promises from Isaac. Surely from Isaac, because Esau was Isaac's favourite. Maybe Isaac was even unaware of the word that the Lord had given to Rebekah. Maybe Isaac had sat down with Esau and said, this will be yours, my oldest son, my hunting son who gives me the food that I like. The family, the inheritance, the blessing of Abraham. And Esau didn't care at all. No one apostatizes. No one deconstructs their faith without considering little value the promises of God. They believe that they don't exist. They believe that they're not tied in any way to faith. Or they believe that it doesn't matter compared to what you can get now. And that's what we're like as human beings. It's easy to see it in other people. It's hard to see it when it's right in front of us. Just like whatever you have in front of you when you're 45. It's a long time ago. But it feels like the most important thing in the world when you're 45. I need this now. What good does it do me to get something in heaven? If I don't have this now, everyone else has it. I need it now. 
or if I don't have money now, or if I'm not popular now, or people don't like me, or if everyone in my circle hates me, what good is it to have the eternal promise? Esau despised what was important. And when we trade the things of God in for the things of the world, we may think it's a simple, understandable, logical position, but it is an affront to God. His goodness, His glory, His promises that He makes to each of each one of us as His children. Esau was uninterested in the promises of God. My dear friends, don't be uninterested in, in the things of God. They're of priority. They're of prime importance. And Esau was consumed by his desires. And if you think about this, this is really important because the world tells us today that we are, our identity is found in our desires. It's not consistent, but that's what the world says. They're not consistent about it, but the world says that our identity is found in our desires. You are what you feel. And that's probably true today more than it's ever been before. If you feel like a different gender, you are a different gender. If you feel one set of sexual desires, you should act on those set of sexual desires. And to deny fulfilment is not to deny someone happiness, but it's to fundamentally undermine their identity. That's what the sexual revolution is about. And it is about what God has said. Man thinks it's clever enough to say he's not. Oh, how foolish. Sin makes you stupid. These desires, especially related to sex and gender, because it's all over everywhere, those desires define you. That is your identity. And Christians get put up, put up on a pedestal for, I wish they would stop banging on about it. But the reason we talk about it is because of what the Bible says, and it is... It is the difference between life and death. So if somebody says no, or if God says, that is not best for you, that is not glorifying to me. It isn't anymore, if you look at it, the amount of anger there is. I might just be unhappy about it, that's your view, that's my view. No, it's an assault, it's an affront to the person's identity, which is why our culture will not have, let people have two different opinions. It's not a question of free speech anymore. It's not a question of, I will do this and you can think it's wrong. It's because in you thinking that these desires are mistaken in me, you're calling into question my whole identity, my value, my personhood. And so your non-acceptance of my desires feels to me like violence to the person, hatred of my identity. So we live in a world where desires define us. And as I said, we're wildly inconsistent with this philosophy in life. Because you can't pretend to be another race. You may have desires to eat all the time, but there are programs that help you reorder and reform and reshape your desires. So you don't want to eat all the time. So we are wildly inconsistent. But the dominant message that we receive from the world is that our desires... Set apart a few of these must be fulfilled. They must be fulfilled. 
my friend, there is so much benefit. And I can still remember, I thank the Lord for godly parents who said to me, you must say no to sin. You must say no. You must deny instant pleasure. Say no to sin. Say no to instant pleasure. And even as Christians, if we're quick to say, well, I don't think that way, even as Christians, we can believe that our emotions, our experiences are uncontrollable and unquestioned. For most of the history in the West, not just with Christian theology, but just Western philosophy, they distinguished between the lower appetites and the higher appetites. And the idea was that reason should have control over your lower appetites, your desire for food, your desire for sex. That's Western philosophy. And Christian theology says, well, even your reason is tainted by the fall. So you can't always count on your reason for the power of the Holy Spirit working in you by God's grace through the word or to have control over our appetites and desires. In other words, it's a new thing in the history of the West to say that you must always fulfill your desires. And we must remember that part of having a biblical worldview is not just having certain propositions that we think about God and the world. Having a biblical worldview means that we let the Bible interpret our experiences for us. We interpret what we experience. I don't know, we, we, we looked at this when, um, I think I, when we, I, I, I remember the family very, very well, the guy who was, Luke Jenner and his little girl drew a picture for me from John's Gospel when I was preaching on it. And, you know, how the pain of childbirth translates into the joy of giving birth. Drew a lovely picture of me, of, you know, of, it's a really funny picture of a, of a lady sort of, you know, in, screaming in agony. I mean, I, 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 it's a wonderful picture. But the point being is that if you, pain can mean different things. So if you have a pain in your abdomen, but you're pregnant and you're nine months, that pain tells you something. It tells you one thing. But if you're not pregnant, it can tell you, that pain can tell you something else. That pain could mean that you, you know, your appendix is about to explode. So you can have a pain, both painful in the same area, and you interpret them differently based on the experience. So we have this inconsistency in our world that we no longer give ourselves the ability to interpret our experiences. We simply say that's a good experience and that is a bad. But imagine if you go to a doctor's office, a doctor's surgery, and say, I've struggled my whole life with these feelings and I'm ready to do something about it. I want you to take off my hands. The doctor wouldn't do it, I hope. And said, no, there's something wrong, I feel for you, but I won't remove your hands. But if you say I've struggled my whole life with these feelings and I want you to remove my sexual organs, the doctor might be in trouble for not doing what is wanted to be done. What is the difference? The world frames and tells us how to interpret our desires. And in one, the desire surely should not be fulfilled. Because though it might elit, elicit concern and care, it is troubling not to be satisfied. But the other, the world, tells us it is under every circumstance to be encouraged. Esau, he was defined by his desires and they deceived him. 
They deceived him because he had a better identity. He had a better identity as the firstborn of Isaac. And he gave it away. He became a profane man. We use that word about swear words, but he was a profane man. He treated what was sacred with irrelevance and disrespect. He became a profane man. He treated what was sacred, God's promises. He treated God's promises with disrespect. And what Moses, by the Spirit, is doing here, it's deliberate. And once you have the eyes to see it, you will not unsee it. Esau is being depicted as an animal, enslaved to his natural desires. It's not even as clear as in the English as it is in the Hebrew. He says, let me eat some of that red stew. And in the Hebrew, it's a doubling up. It's ha-ha-adon, ha-ha-adon, not Adon, Adam, which is man, but Ha-Adon, it sounds like Edom, but it simply means red stuff. You could simply translate it, he said, give me red stuff, give me red stuff. He even, in the Hebrew, sounds like a barbarian. And he exaggerates the extent of his need. He says in verse 32, I'm about to die. Now I know teenage boys sometimes say I'm about to die when they're hungry, but they really are not. Now, true, maybe he'd been out on a hunting trip for days, but the fact is that he had walked there. He had walked there. He was standing up. He's not about to die. He'd walked there. He's standing up on his own two feet. We've all had kids, we're all children who say, I'm starving. I didn't eat. The last time I ate was five minutes ago. I, I, you know. But this is Esau here. Impulsive, emotional, fainting, exaggerating. Gulping, slurping. The picture is very much that he gulped this stew down and then wiped it out from the back of his hand. He wasn't made nobler for satisfying his lower desires. He was made lower. He became like an animal. Because you see the play on the words in the description here. Verse 27 Esau was a skillful hunter. He is the hunter. Jacob is not the hunter. He was a quiet man. He stayed by the tent. Esau's the hunter. And the hunter has become the hunted. He came with all of his skill, no food to show. And with a morsel of stew, he becomes the prey. Ensnared in Jacob's trap. An unsuspecting animal who doesn't see the wire mesh all around. Just a little bit of mouse in a little bit of cheese. A bear wandering into the trap. The hunter became the hunted. The one who knew how to trap and kill has become the animal himself. To satisfy your earthly desires doesn't make you more human, it makes you less human. Not all of our desires are sinful, of course. To be our Christian is to have our desires reordered to the things of God. Buddhism says the problem in life is that you have desires, so get rid of desires. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says as fallen creatures, our desires are often wrong. Desire what is better. Desire God. Follow God and his promises. Combat those lower desires with glorious heavenly promises. Maybe you're here this morning and you know, maybe for yourself or for someone else, they're in danger, they're ready to ditch the Christian faith. 
ready to walk away from it. You have deconstructed your family. You've deconstructed your church. You've deconstructed your theology. And to be sure, you may have encountered sin against you. We don't minimise that. But have you considered that your interpretation may not be right? Have you considered the choice you're about to make? Are you ready to make that trade? Sell the eternal promises for a bowl of stew. And there's a second group of people ready not to ditch the whole Christian faith, but to ditch a core strand of traditional Christian teaching. And I can promise you that once you start, the floodgates will open. You can't manage, you can't, you can't, you can't disbelieve one verse in this book without it all unravelling. It may have to do with sex, which is often what it is in our day and age. It's, ah, I still love Jesus, I'm all about God. But I believe he's a God of love. But I don't know one person who's let one core thread of faith go and stops with just one. You don't. There's no one who changes their views on marriage or sexuality and then 10 years later they're all fired up about penal substitutionary atonement and the sovereignty of God and election and inerrancy. No, they become more and more liberal. It's a slippery slope. And there must be a connection in our day with compromising our views on sex and living compromised sexual lives. And it's hard to be addicted to pornography and then dare to say that somebody else's sexual choices aren't pleasing to God. A third group of people, those who are ready to sell off your spiritual blessing for a bowl of stew. That's the most common thing, I think. You don't mean to leave Christianity behind. You don't mean to leave behind the faith once delivered for the saints. But you make a foolish decision. And you're ready to trade in the blessing of your marriage or the blessing of relationships with your children or the blessing of going to bed each night with a clean conscience. The blessing of knowing the smile of God. And you're ready to trade that in because you want people to like you. I think that is one of the biggest dangers. That you want people to like you. That you want to be accepted. You want to be accepted as a, you know, as a church minister. You want other people to accept you and like you. You compromise the truth. You want to move up the ladder at work. You can't give up this job. You've got to get into that school. You have to do this one thing. The stories like Esau in the Bible, so that we sat, sit, sit, we stand up, we, we sit up this morning and say, why did Esau do it? How could he have done it? Esau, why? And if you consider it was obvious to you, why did he do it? Maybe to ask yourself, is this a good trade-off? what I'm doing. Because we all have the capacity, honestly, to be as stupid as Esau. And sin not only is stupid, but sin makes us blind. And everyone else can see that we're making the wrong decision. But we think we're being faithful. We think, well, I thought, you know, the, all the sermons have been about the promise, faith and promise. This seems like a bit of a do not do this kind of sermon. This seems like 
The parents, you know, don't, don't do this stupid kind of thing. But this is about faith. Because Esau didn't believe in the promise. So this isn't just a message of go be smarter. You won't live a, a, a fulfilling life unless you have faith in the promises of God. I want you to listen to these promises. You've heard them before, but maybe you've forgotten them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. The world tells you you have to elbow everyone out of your way. You have to be a bully. Blessed are the meek. The world says you'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. The world says, go get them. Make them pay. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see what? God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are the conflict stirrer-uppers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utters all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Every one of the Beatitudes Jesus says, can you believe in a better promise? They, they, they are promises to believe in. They are promises to strengthen us. Can you trust him this morning? Can you trust Jesus? And can you pass on the world's mess of stew? Nothing against stew, but you know what I mean. And believe him for the blessings that are yours. They are yes and amen in Jesus. May God have all the glory for his name's sake. Amen.